Well, good morning. You don't usually see me at this time in the service, do you? Um, it's my pleasure to step into the sermon time this morning and uh, take that on this week. Uh, we're going to be looking, if you want to have your Bibles open, we're going to be looking at Luke 16, and I'll be doing the first parable in Luke 16 today, and Pastor Tom will take the second parable that's in Luke 16 next week. Would any of you like the idea of experiencing what it's like to just be filthy rich? Just me? A few of you would? Yeah? Have you ever had this thought? What would you do if you had a million dollars? Right? Think about that. And what would it be like to be one of those, like, really rich people who has their own yacht and stuff like that, right? What would it be like to be that person? That'd be crazy. I'm going to give you some interesting quotes I just looked up from rich people. Anybody know Kevin O'Leary? He's my favorite guy to watch that you love to hate on TV. He said, I want to go to bed richer than when I woke up. I want to kill the competitors, make their lives miserable, steal their market share. Mark Cuban, also on Shark Tank, says, I don't care what anybody says, being rich is a good thing. But he says, the more you make, the more of a financial impact you can make. That's a little bit better, I think. Then there's a guy named Phil Taylor, the drummer from Motorhead, said this, people think that being rich is all about having money, but the times I've had the most money is when I've been the most unhappy. Then there was a fellow in 2008 in the financial downturn, was the fifth richest person in Germany. And due to the the downturn and some bad business moves, he lost the majority of his business, and he chose to end his life because he couldn't bear it. The impact of riches is vast, and the Bible speaks to it fairly often. I know I don't make a lot of money, but I also know that on the global scale, I would still be considered to be pretty well off, all things considered in people's living arrangements around the world. So, we have that to think about, and the parable that we're looking at today, if you want to look at Luke 16, is called, in most, in most headings, you would see the title, The Parable of the Shrewd Manager. A little bit of a strange title. There's some other names that might show up in different versions, but the shrewd manager is what we're going with today. And we're titling this sermon, You Can't Serve Two Masters, and that will show up later in the text. And I want to remind you something that Pastor Tom's been telling us all along the way, is when you look at a parable, you can't pick apart every little detail and apply it to every little part of our life. You have to look for Jesus' main point and not get too caught up in the details that aren't the main point. So we'll do that together. I also want to look at something that we uh, rolled out this past September, which is our, we're going to tie this in a little bit later in the sermon, our vision statement for the year. How many of you have been studying this and, and just putting it in your brain and memorizing it? Let's say our, our vision statement together. Transforming our world together through the power of God, one life at a time. Transforming. Transforming is what we want to be about. Transforming ourselves through the power of God and transforming through us to others. 
they can experience the transformation of God as well. And I love this, this uh, verse from Romans 12 to, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by, this is how, the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So I want to help contribute to renewing our minds this morning as I've had a chance to look into these scriptures this morning and hope to be able to bring some light into them. So, let's pause as we look at God's word. It's his word to us. It's a living word. Let's just pause and and talk to him about it. God, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Thank you that you spoke to us in this way and revealed yourself to us. And we pray that our hearts would be opened, our minds would be opened to participate in this conversation, to hear as your Holy Spirit shows us the meaning and reveals in our hearts what we should take away today. Amen. All right, let's start with the first three verses of the parable, which introduces what's going on. There was a rich man, oh sorry, Jesus told his disciples, that's important. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, Hmm, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. So he's in a position here. So first, we noted Jesus is talking to who? disciples. And then I'll just give a spoiler that in verse 14 it says that the Pharisees are also present. So we have the the disciples are hearing, the Pharisees are hearing. That's kind of the audience as well as us, the readers. So our two main characters, this rich man and the manager that he's hired to take care of all of his affairs and his resources. And we pick up the story, he's already being fired. We don't really know why, just general mismanagement, he's supposed to give an account. So he's realized the situation, he doesn't want to be begging, and so he sets a plan in motion. He says, I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he calls in each one of his master's debtors, he asks the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, that's a lot of olive oil, who buys that much olive oil? Uh, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. So he slashes that guy's bill in half to make it nice for him, give him a good deal. Second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. So he gives him a 20% discount. So he's going to endear himself to people so that when this all comes down, he's got a place to stay. He's got people who are going to think fondly of him. Chances are, throughout his mismanagement, he's probably made some enemies along the way. That'd be my guess. Now, you might think this might be a bad plan. The boss might not be impressed with this. It might just further lead to more consequences. But interestingly, Jesus goes somewhere else with this. You might call this a bit of a plot twist. He goes on and he says, The master commended the dishonest, the, the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves 
so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, if, that, if those couple of verses went right over your head and you didn't understand a whole bunch of jargon in there, I think you're normal. We have to look at, into some of these definitions and these words. So I'm going to highlight some things that stood out to me. So, the first one is dishonest. I saw dishonest and I go, the master commended the dishonest manager? What's with that? So why does he get off the hook? And the truth is, it isn't the dishonesty that he's being commended for. The point Jesus is trying to make is because he acted shrewdly. So it's that act that he's commending, not the dishonest. The dishonesty is why he's getting fired, why he's not able to keep having his job and his role in this person's business. So that brings up our first important point today before we get into the shrewd part, is that just know that dishonesty doesn't cut it. And here's where we take the first big look into our own lives. And we say that if you have any dishonest practices in your life, if you have any mismanagement of resources, either your own or someone else's that you've been entrusted with, either deliberately or negligently, we as Christians are called to do better. We're called to conduct ourselves with honesty, integrity, upright methods and behaviors. And we cannot compromise our moral or ethical responsibilities in order to gain something for ourselves. And so if you're caught up in doing anything that way, I would encourage you, it's time to stop. It's time to put a stop to those things, take a stand for your faith, for Jesus, and do the right thing. So what he's actually being commended for is being shrewd. This is a word that probably has a negative connotation in your mind. If someone's shrewd in a deal, they're probably trying to get the upper hand somehow. But actually, if you look at the dictionary definition, it's kind of neutral. The word itself is fairly neutral. Having or showing sharp powers of judgment or being astute. So it doesn't have to be negative. In fact, I would say it's probably not being used negatively here because he's not going to be commended for doing something in a negative way. He's probably being commended for doing it just being clever or cunning or coming up with a good solution. The master actually kind of seems impressed. He's like, I was firing this guy. He wasn't doing anything, but uh, that, kind of, that move actually is kind of impressive. <laughs> he made a, a good bed for himself to lie in. So, just as we are, it also says in that passage, if I go back to it here, there we go, the master commended him, for the people of this world are more shrewd in their dealing with their own kind, which means if we take it neutrally, they're better at making deals for their own earthly future than the people of the light are at making deals or, or setting up their heavenly future. So we are called to be just as good. The people of the world, that refers to worldly people, people who live for this age only. They're not believers in God. They're not walking with God. The people of light would be people who believe in God, walk in his ways, want to follow him, aim to follow him. And so the encouragement here is to have just as much foresight and planning into setting up our eternal future for us and the people around us. What does worldly wealth mean? That, again, that, that 
seems like a very negative view, like your worldly wealth, low. But I would say it's, again, used fairly neutrally in this passage. The money or possessions of the world, the stuff you get in your paycheck, the stuff that shows up in your bank account, that's worldly wealth. It's neutral. It can be used for evil. It can be used for good. And our encouragement here is to use it to what? Gain friends, friendships, build relationships. The money that's in our bank account, the possessions, the resources we have are to be used for good, for building relationship, for serving people, for serving God's kingdom. All so that when it is gone, when it's all done, when we, each, when we reach the end of our life and everything fades away, we stand before Jesus and we can enter and be welcomed into our eternal dwellings. The eternal dwellings being that heavenly and eternal reward that we're looking forward to. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever's dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches, the heavenly stuff, the mission of Jesus Christ? If you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property in this life, who would give you property of your own? And some people might say, well, I don't really want to be trusted with more. Don't give me great responsibilities. But that's, that's a cop-out. The truth is, is that as Christians, we should want in on the action. We should want to be able to be trusted with the heavenly, to be in a position where we can share the gospel with another person. Tell them the good news that can alter their future forever. We should want to be in that position. And so, we should be showing results with the resources we've been entrusted with now. If you've been given little, show that you've been trustworthy with it, acting in a righteous way. That can be the little finances that you have, the little properties that you have, the the job that you've got. You start showing that and proving to God that you can be a trustworthy person, build good relationships. You can that's your proving ground for God to know if he can work with you, work through you. That brings us to, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It doesn't say you cannot have both God and money, But you cannot serve them as your master, as your ultimate goal, your ultimate prize. You make money that ultimate prize, it's going to end up, the warning is, it's going to end up leaving God out. So think of it this way. We're trusted with money and resources to enable us and better enable us to serve God, to serve others, to work for his kingdom, not the other way around. We don't have people in our lives so that they can serve our better making us more rich, right? We have to be careful of this and how we do business, how we talk to people, how we take advantage of people. And I would add another layer. We definitely don't want to use our religion, our church, as a place to get our own benefit from either. We want to be very careful that we're working 
honorably amongst our fellow Christians and in our church. And we see false teachers, just like in biblical times, we see them today. We see people manipulating their flock out of money for their own personal benefit. And I would say, just know that we don't believe that that's right. So if you've been confused by someone's manipulative ways and financial gains, just know that we would agree with you that that's off. That's not okay. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. This, le- this uh, speaks of the, the fallen nature of man. What we, what, we, what we desire naturally before being renewed by Jesus is rebel- rebellion against God. And we need to be renewed by Jesus. So, maybe you've heard the phrase, money is the root of all evil. Have you heard of that one? Did you know that one's from the Bible? Well, actually, it's not. (laughs) It's almost from the Bible. Some of those words are in the phrase that comes from the Bible. The actual verse says it this way. 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So it's our heart's desire to serve our own financial future and gain above God as our master. That is what is the root of evil within us, and we have to guard ourselves against that. And so, I would just say that if you've struggled with any of this in any way in your life, now is not too late. Repent from love of money. And it can be love of, like, monetary money itself, like bank account balance, or it can be resources and accumulation of wealth and possessions and big house and all this stuff. If that's your master... Repent from that. And repent is one of those old Christian words that gets a bad rap, but it's a very simple word. It just means reorient yourself. Turn away from that. Turn away from that. Commit that to Jesus, that you're going to turn away from that. The greater danger in all of this is what the Pharisees fell victim to. They were lovers of money, and they have already mismanaged that. God's calling them out on that. So he's not letting them have the next, the better resource, the better uh, thing that they can share with people. He's saying, I can't even trust you with money. You make that your your ultimate reward and not God. I I sure can't trust you with spreading myself to everybody, the Messiah to the world, right? They're missing out on that opportunity. So, we might ask ourselves, what, what do I do? What do I do in all this? How do I follow God's word? How do I behave in a good Christian way? How do I manage my money? And don't you ever just want like, it to be simple? Like, God, just tell me what to do. Like, I will get up in the morning, just, 
the answer's right in front of me, I'll just do it. And that's kind of like what the Old Testament is in a way. It's rules laid out that you just do, do, do. But the heart behind those rules was always that the heart of the people would be choosing to do those things for him. And now, we live on the other side of Christ, and so we don't have that old covenant, those same rules that we're bound to. And so this is part of my renewing of our minds, is reminding us some of this stuff about old covenant, new covenant, that kind of goes over our head and we forget about. So you might have heard something like this. Well, how do I I be uh, giving or, or... how do I be a good steward of my finances as a Christian? You might say, well, you just need to give, you need to tithe. You just need to give 10% to the church. Right? It says that right in the Bible somewhere, so you've you got to do that. But the 10% tithe was actually only part of that Old Testament tithe. I don't know if you knew this, but there was three different 10% tithes. It actually equaled more like 25% when you added them all up. See, Israel was a, like a nation state, and so they had their own taxes. They had their own ways of dealing with the poor. They had their own ways of upkeeping the temple and things like that. But we're not Israelites. We're Christians, but we're, most of us probably are Canadians. You're paying your taxes, I'm assuming? I'm assuming, Sandra. <laughs> Deadline's today. <laughs> so that's... I mean, that, that's a little bit of a breakdown of how things are different. And so the Bible's full of different times in which it says they gave a tithe, they gave a tithe. So if you feel like you're called to give a tithe to the church and God's putting that on your heart, I would say that's a good thing to do. But it's not the church's job right now to stand up here and say, what is required of you in order to stay right with God is a tithe. The old covenant is not what we live by anymore. We live under a new covenant covenant of Jesus. So, um, Pastor Tom and I are kind of splitting this chapter, so I'll say a couple things about these next three verses that I picked out for this parable, and if Tom wants to go back into them next week, he can. So it starts to say that the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone forcing their way into it, right? We have to get into the new covenant. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Jesus doesn't come to abolish the law, but he comes to fulfill the law. So this is best understood along with the next verse. He's, he's kind of uh, going back to his Sermon on the Mount. So let's just spend some time reading some of the Sermon on the Mount just to remind us of what he says about his kingdom, the new covenant. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So you may have heard the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Right? So it's an outward act, murder, wrong, versus now it's an, a heart. If it's happening in your heart, it's already sin. It keeps on going. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks lustfully has already committed adultery. In the heart. And then this last one parallels right with verse 18 of Luke. 
And I believe, now Pastor Tom and I were like, what's this? If you've got Luke um, open, Luke 16 open, it's just like between the two parables, it's like this, oh, and don't divorce each other. Like in the middle of two parables about rich people. But it, it's hearkening to his expansion of the law into the new covenant, which, which, which even ups the game of responsibility on a Christian because it's what's happening in our heart. I don't know if you knew this, but when he's talking about divorce in both Luke 16 and in the, in the, um, his, his big, what is it called? The Sermon on the Mount. Um, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of, of divorce. But now he brings it to another layer because in that culture, the woman bore all the responsibility and the men bore almost no responsibility in a divorce. You just have to give her a certificate, right? But he flips it, and he tells them anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, that's biblical grounds for divorce, makes her the victim of adultery. So this is putting it all on the man. This is outrageous to them because of the culture, because of how men and women were at the time. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It's never been stated to them like this before. Like, the man is committing adultery. Like, literally, the way it worked back then was that any of this stuff took place, divorce and sexuality stuff, it's all the woman's fault. (laughs) It's pretty unfair. And he's flipping it around. So the same thing happens. We see it in Luke. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It's right from the Sermon on the Mount which is how he's explaining how the new covenant works. It's in the heart. That's where we have our vision statement. It's not about conforming to rules. It's not about tell me what to do in the morning and I'll do it, God. It's about transform my heart, God. Transforming our world together through the power of God, one life at a time. And think of yourself as that one life at a time, going out from me to others. We all bear it for ourselves. And just a note about um, creating a a vision or a plan or a, a picture of church giving. If you've grown up with views of church giving that that kind of irk you, like why does the church all ask for money? Why do they always want my money? That's actually an incomplete picture of what church giving is. So if we want to have our church giving picture renewed and transformed in our mind, think of it this way. We are the church. All of us are the church. And we get to pool our resources together and do amazing things in the community and the world. Right? So you could... You could bear it down to 10% each if you wanted to. I mean, if that's what the Lord is calling you to give, that's what it says in the the New Testament is, whatever is on your heart to give, you should give. And if the Lord knows that you can't give at a certain time, he knows that. If he knows that you should be, he knows that as well too. It's between you and God. We can give you advice and pictures from Scripture, but that's what it says. Joyfully, excitedly, generously give. Not just to the local church, to Rob and Karina, (laughs) to causes, to organizations, to individuals, to missionaries, to people in your life that need supporting. Generously and joyfully 
give. So every time we get together and do a church budget, it's like, oh, another meeting. Oh, they want my money. No, it's let's get together and talk about what we can do as a church with the resources we have combined together. It's actually a beautiful picture. Just as the manager was asked to give an account of what he managed, we are going to be asked to give an account of what we've been given to manage. There will be a day. There will be a judgment day. We will have to stand before the Lord and answer, what have you done with what I've given you? And I would like to hear back, well done, good and faithful servant, which puts some responsibility on me to be that good and faithful servant with the resources, the monetary resources, and also the ministry resources, the people in our lives that he's put, that he's trusted us with. It's never too late to turn to Jesus, to start afresh. So I talked before about repenting from the love of money, Turn away from and turn to Jesus. This is the answer. Jesus is the faithful one. His promises are sure. He asks us to be faithful to him in return. And that's how a covenant works. He is faithful to us and he just asks that we be faithful to him in return. Can we uphold our end? Can we experience how full and rich his faithfulness is? And can we see how he wants to partner with us in his creation? To redeem and and reconcile the world back to him through our relationships with others, to pursuing service to other people, whether it's in positions within the church, which we always are inviting people to step into. It's about kingdom work or whether it's in your personal lives and the people that are close to you. Participating in kingdom advancement. You'll notice we often pray for that when we pray for our offerings here. We say, use this to advance your kingdom, God. And so, let's come together. We'll, 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 we'll close in prayer as the worship team comes back to, to draw us to Christ. God, thank you for these reminders of your faithfulness and of your bigger picture and plan for our lives, for the resources you've trusted us with. God, we need your help to be faithful. We can't do it on our own. We submit to you and your will. Renew our minds and reveal to us what your good will is for us. We want to turn to you, even now as we close our service, but beyond just this service closing time, we want to turn to you this week and the steps we take from here, the steps in our lives, in the coming days, months, may our lives be turned away from that love of money into your presence, into your forgiveness, into your love, Jesus Christ. Amen.